Welcome back to NC Realtors Redefine, the NC Realtors podcast. On this episode of Redefine, as part of NC Realtors Building the Mosaic campaign, our diversity committee liaisons, Carrie Epps Rashad and Amy Kemp, have a conversation with Leslie Williams about her real estate journey and what it means to be the first African-American female president of the Raleigh Association of Realtors. And from our Mobile Monday series on Facebook, NC Realtor Connie Corey sorts through the good, the bad, and the ugly of home inspections with Greenville broker Brad Carter and home inspector David Dye. But first... Do you have feedback on a story or topic that you'd like to hear covered on this podcast? Then give NC Realtors Redefine a call at 336-550-4437. When leaving your voicemail, be sure to tell us your name and where you're from. Your comments may be used on a future episode of NC Realtors Redefined. I'm Amy Kemp. And we are the co-staff liaison to the NC Realtors Diversity Committee. Today we have the pleasure of having a conversation with Leslie Williams. Leslie Williams is the broker owner of Leslie Williams Realty Group. How are you today, Leslie? I am doing wonderful. Thank you for having me today. You're welcome. Leslie, why real estate and how did you get into the industry? Well, real estate is, I don't think that right now in my life where I am now that I have been a realtor for almost 12 years, there isn't another industry that I would want to be involved in. Um, I got um, introduced, for example, with uh, real estate back in the late 1990s when my husband and I started to look for our first property. And we had met a couple, a husband and wife team who had helped us to purchase our first home and just the impact that they had on us and how we perceived the process and just the, how it had transformed our life. I wanted to be able to do the same for others. So that's why I chose to become a realtor because I wanted to make a difference in the life of others. So was real estate your first career? No, actually it was not. For over 25 years, I worked in the publishing industry, both in print in internet media. And so, yeah, my background has been in marketing and I've worked for um, several publishing houses in New York. Awesome. Talk to us about obstacles that you have overcome in your career and how have they made you stronger? Well, while I, once I got into the real estate, real estate, being a realtor is um, not an easy job because each day you wake up, you are unemployed. So I really had to learn how to get out there and market myself, how to connect with other people. I had to learn about the contracts. I had to take additional certifications so that I could be an advocate for my clients and community where I served in. So the challenge was one, to get educated about the industry, two, to become, how would you say, how become prudent and the responsibility that I had in, in working with um, buyers and sellers in the marketplace. And then I also wanted to learn more about the industry and get involved on the serving side and to, to be able to be a volunteer so that I can learn more about the industry and decisions that were being made. And so those were the obstacles was learning how to become better 
at an industry that I had already fell in love with. And um, I think that those were the biggest challenges that I had was one to get my footing and then being able to see that there wasn't a lot of people like myself who was represented uh, in our industry. So that that is still something that I want to continue to work on to encourage other minorities to get involved in volunteering and get involved in the leadership. Leslie, you're the first African-American female president of the Raleigh Association of Realtors, and Raleigh is one of our largest local boards. Um, can you talk a little bit just about who inspired you and how you sort of fell into that leadership role throughout your 12 years in real estate? Yes, absolutely. I sure can, Amy. I I believe it was um, 2008 when I, when I came to, it was a uh, social, the holiday social that we always have at the association. And there wasn't that many people there. But when I walked into the building, the building just sort of had, it, it was just huge space. And I was thinking, okay, well, what happens in here? Who are the people that work here? Uh, what type of members show up here? And I just got excited about the opportunity that I didn't know what that was about and I wanted to learn. And so what I did was I said, well, you know what? I'm going to go down there and I'm going to figure out how I can get involved. And so I just jumped right in there and I started to serve on committees and I started to um, learn more about the different operations of the association. I joined Leadership Academy. I was accepted to become, you know, part of that. And that really opened up my eyes to the opportunities that were available. But again, I said to myself, okay, um, how can I be part of the change that I didn't already see present there? And so that was really how I did it. I just, I'm self-motivated. So I think that that's part of it. So if I see something that I want to go after, I will do that. But along the way, there were lots of other presidents and lots of other volunteer leaders that were there that encouraged me to continue to go forward. They encouraged me to step up to various leadership roles. And so there was a lot of folks who were instrumental in that, um, in my journey. Well, you are really self-motivated and have made quite a name for yourself in the short time you've been in real estate. Would you have any advice to give to other, maybe either new or seasoned realtors who haven't gotten involved in the association, how they could feel, especially those of color who might feel kind of alone as they walk into a room um, and not necessarily see themselves in that room? Do you have any kind of guidance you could give to them on how they could feel more comfortable, get more involved? Yes, ma'am. I sure do. And so, again, I think for me, my personality was that I'm somewhat of, you know, very outgoing. So I would find someone to go up to and talk. And I know that not everyone has that um, feeling and that they don't want to assert themselves that they would like an invitation. So what I would say is find someone that you connect with. Talk to them a little bit about your goals and say, well, how could I accomplish this? And start to take baby steps And that none of us, none of us, anyone who's ever done anything have started out at the beginning. And I think that's really what I want to communicate is that although you may see people on stage or getting recognized and you feel that they're bigger than life, and maybe I can't do that because I'm, I don't feel that I'm bigger than life, but we're all the same. We're, we're all put our pants on the same way, uh, approachable people. And I think just, 
you know, step out there on faith that if your intention is to for good and you have something that you want to say, go out there and take that next step, but also find a mentor, a friend or someone who is willing to uh, support you and maybe make those introductions for you um, because the opportunities are there. And I think we have to step towards those opportunities in order to realize them. And I know that that can be scary, but I'm here. I'm that person that you can call to ask for help and support. I'll be there to do that for you. That's great advice. Thank you for for all that. Um, I know real estate has changed over the over the years. You've seen a lot of changes, especially with the pandemic in the last couple of years. Um, and it's hard because it's been a hard it's been a hard road these last couple of years with low inventory and and all the changes that have come through with the pandemic and other other issues. But what's something that you would say you love about what you do? Love about your job? Oh, what I love about it, what I most love about it is the relationships that I get to build with individuals, the staff like you all, other realtors, you know, the networking, the education. I mean, I love everything about it. That's why I guess I'm sort of one of those volunteers that kind of actually like this and like people. Um, it, It really empowers you when you're seeing other people who are doing great things or have done things that you would like to accomplish yourself. I think that that is Uh, energizing and that it gives you the wherewithal to believe that you can do it. I think that's why representation is so important because you get to see other people doing things that you admire. And then therefore that gives you the fuel to go ahead and step forward. So that's what I love about on the industry, the serving side, the other piece is to be able to have the impact that I do to help people uh, realize their dreams that, you know, the clients that I get to work with, and then they get to refer me and really um, give that appreciation back to have had someone who's an advocate for them. And that's what I try to be. I try to be an advocate for the voice, for the people who don't have a voice and stand in the front line for them and be accountable and supportive and encouraging. That's what I love about our industry. Um, Leslie, I know you talk about volunteering. I know you talk about diversity and inclusion. And, you know, I've had the pleasure of working very close to you, with you, when it came to diversity and inclusion within our organization. You were my diversity chair. Um, I want to say 2008, 2010. Probably. You know what, Curry? It might have been, it wasn't 2016, was it? I'm not sure. But you know what? Whenever it was, it was so exciting. It was my first volunteer opportunity on the state level. So amen. Yes. And you did an amazing (laughs) job. So from that, um, tell us one or two things that you have done to to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion within the real estate industry. Well, thank you very much for that question, because it was something that... um, I think a lot about, but I, I try to be more intentional. So what I mean by that is, for example, being the first um, female African-American president of Raleigh Association of Realtors, I think it's important to be able to show individuals that uh, minorities can lead, um, that we're prepared, that we have a voice, and that it's not a voice that's only built around Uh, minority leadership, but leadership for all, and that we have to have an inclusive environment for individuals to feel that one, that they have support to be able to grow and develop into leaders. 
uh, to be able to um, provide education and resources for individuals who need it. And a lot of times, again, if we're not represented in the space, then we're not given, getting the training and development and opportunities that we need to be effective in the industry. So what I try to be is I try to be an example and where I can provide educations to others about what we really need to do to provide inclusion, because it's not just finding individuals who may be from different ethnic backgrounds, um, different education, but it's more about having the inclusion when we do have minority leadership that we have to provide an environment of belonging and also of uh, to give them the opportunity to be decision makers and to participate in a decision making process. So it's a constant conversation and a dialogue and saying that we all are wanting the same things to be able to be our best selves, to be able to grow and develop as we need to, to be able to represent our very diverse member organization. So um, tell me what diversity, inclusion, or cultural training did you receive and how have you applied that to your job or with your clients? Oh, well, that's great. So I'm at home with diversity, I'm C2EX, I've done Fairhaven. Actually, right now, I was I just learned about um, a program through the University of South Florida. It's called Inclusive and Ethical Leadership. There's a certification that um, I've encouraged uh, the executive committee at the association, at Raleigh Association of Realtors, to participate in. And then we can then offer that and share that to the general membership as well as our board of directors on this opportunity to take this certification. I think it'll be enlightening. And the focus is really on the inclusion portion and the ethicalness that we need in our leaders to be effective to push forward the DEI initiative. Well, that's awesome. Leslie, you've certainly left your footprint on your local association, your community, the state association. How do you wanna be remembered in the future? Well, <laughs> that is that 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 is something that um you know I don't keep in the forefront of my mind because I think that my work speaks to the fact that I care about people, I care about our industry, but most of all, I think I would love for people to be able to remember me and say that she was courageous, that she cared about others, and that she created a culture uh, for inclusion for everyone to feel welcomed and to be able to express themselves without judgment. You're such an inspiration and we as staff love working with you and look forward to seeing what you do in the future. Um, thank you for that. We have some fun little rapid fire questions to ask you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> or so you can just give fast answers or just like six of them. So you ready? Okay. okay. Yeah. What, when are you most productive? Probably 11 o'clock hour, 7 a.m., somewhere around there. What advice would you give to your younger self? It's going to be just fine, girl. Keep going. How do you start your day? I start my day with prayer. Before I step out of the bed, I pray. If you could live anywhere in the world, where would that be? Ooh, I would probably say Fiji. Ooh, I like Fiji too. <laughs> What's the first thing you notice about someone when you meet them? The expression on their face. And what is the nickname that your parents used to call you when you were little? Oh, I can't tell. <laughs> you have to. <laughs> wink, wink. 
We. Wink. W I N K. Okay, everybody's gonna use it now. Oh my goodness. <laughs> That's cute. <laughs> I used to watch a show that was Bullwinkle. Uh-huh. Bullwinkle. And so, you know, he used to sing that song, You're a Wink a Dink. Wink a Dink. I used to love it. So that's where that comes oh, that's from. Awesome. <laughs> Leslie Wink Williams. Love yeah. it. <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you for being with us today. We've enjoyed our time with you as always. Well, thank, thank you, you very much for having me. And I appreciate you all. And yes, I always have felt so welcome and so supported by our state association. And this is just another example of that. And you guys are always awesome. And thanks again for the opportunity to share. You're very welcome. And thank you, Leslie, for being such an inspiration. Thank you, guys. First of all, I'd like to thank everybody for being here. I'm Connie Corey. I'm with Aldridge and Southern Realtors in Greenville. And I would like to thank David Dye, who is a home inspector in the Durham area, and Brad Carter, who is also a realtor in Greenville. And I would like to note that um, all the feedback and conversations today are only our personal views and are not on behalf of the North Carolina Home Inspectors Licensure Board. So I'm going to start because we only have a few minutes with Brad. And Brad, can you share one of the most common questions that realtors tend to have for home inspectors? Uh, sure, sure. Uh, I think one of the most common uh, questions that uh, realtors would have for home inspectors are uh, a lot of times after a home inspection is completed and the the agent has met with their client and pr uh, prepared to due diligence requests and agreement. And if those uh, repairs are agreed upon by the seller, uh, once they're done, uh, a few weeks after the person moves in, sometimes you, we all know we get calls about things that are, are not functioning properly. And they call me or any realtor to uh, ask, you know, what do I need to do? The inspector missed such and such, such and such. And I, I you know, I try to be uh, forthright on the front end and say, look, you know, these home inspectors are human beings. They're going to miss uh, various things. Some things are checked representatively. It is not an exhaust, exhaustive process. And they are uh, really looking for major deficiencies. However, if it's something that you feel that should not have been missed, you're more than you're more than welcome to call the inspector. And so that's one thing I get after the deal is done. They uh, seem to always call back and tell me that certain uh, systems or certain items are not working as they should be. So do you think sometimes it comes because the home inspector doesn't have accessibility to inspect? like a panel box or you can't get to a water heater because of boxes and things like that. So I'm going to ask David if he would comment on that, because I, we do see that a lot on some of our inspections. Gotcha. Yeah. The, uh, um, there are oftentimes where uh, things are not accessible and primarily the, the areas are the attic. That's always storage furniture. People forget that they're uh, large, dresser and that sort of thing are just below that pull-down staircase, which uh, can 
can block your access. Uh, crawl space, biggest problems we see there are locks. Uh, people have locked that up. And electric panels, uh, also locks more than anything else. And in terms of electric panels, I encourage everyone to remind the uh, client that they often have more than one electric panel. There can be one outside with the meter. Uh, it can be more than two system electric panels to try to find all of them and uh, make sure there's access to it. Uh, uh, the HVAC systems and water heaters, again, are often blocked by storage. The classic problem is that the garage is often used as the declutter uh, way station and in putting everything in the garage, they are blocking sometimes a water heater, electric panels and things like that. If we get ahead of this, as always, if you get ahead of the situation, remind people that these are items of special importance uh, to the home inspection and to clear that path, keep that path uh, to those items as well as a work area in front of them. Uh, and with the electric panels, we are removing the panel cover uh, itself and therefore exposed to energized circuits. Uh, and that's a safety concern. So we, we can't stand on our head and and uh, uh, to get thing, to get access to something that's dangerous like that, we have to have a good safe work area to get away from it if we need to. Thank you. Um, Brad, I also wanted to ask you as a listing agent, how do you prepare your um, buy or your sellers or your buyers for the home inspection and what to have them prepared to expect from the inspection? And, you know, do you advise them to kind of declutter if it's an opportunity that they can? Uh, yes, I'd say from a buyer standpoint, I'm being a little redundant here, but I think you should set realistic expectations and remind any buyers that, the, that an inspection is not totally exhaustive. You know, it's to get a... Uh, a snapshot of the current health of the home, the major systems. Uh, not every single thing is going to be uh, discovered. I mean, there's latent defects that no one can see between wall cavities and whatnot. And I just think that uh, it's very important to, uh, to just let them know, set realistic expectations uh, and from a seller standpoint, yes, you should always explain to them what happens during a home inspection. And some sellers are, you know, we, we all have those great sellers that take such pride in their home. And you kind of want to talk with them and say, look, I, you've done a beautiful job with this home. And I feel very confident as you do. I think if there's something majorly wrong, it'll be a surprise to both you and me and the buyer but there will be things wrong, uh, regardless of your your extreme uh, uh, detailed you know detailed maintenance. Uh, you know most people do not crawl under their homes on a regular basis unless they don't have much going on in life. So uh, you know things will be discovered, and uh, you just ask them to make the inspector's job as easy as possible. You know, if you have a pull down attic uh, stairs, try to make sure prior to the inspection that the uh, inspector has access to get up into that area, to view rafters, to view roof sheathing, to uh, look at plumbing vents, uh, you know, and 
uh, as David said, you know, we all know that the, the garage is kind of an area that you can get away with having area uh, items stored, but it sure would be nice to not store along the exterior walls, not only for the home inspector, but the wood destroying insect inspector, so that that person can check for maybe termite tubes or, you know, look around that perimeter of that room. Uh, so I just think it's common sense to try to uh, make it as easy as possible on the inspector so that they can give a true report on the uh, current health of that home. David, would you like to add some to what, what would a home inspector like to see a house prepared for? Um, well, you know, what I do with, uh, in preparing for a home inspection is I always send the listing agent a checklist and, and I'm happy to share that checklist, uh, with anyone if they want to reach out to me and send it to you. Um, the, um, in, in, as Brad said, you stressing the importance of enabling the inspection to go smoothly makes the whole process go smoothly. I mean, we're, we're all there trying to, um, handle what is oftentimes a very stressful process for folks. I mean, they are making their single largest investment and we want them to feel comfortable that uh, they're getting the best information they can uh, to make a good decision. And um, one of the things that I often see in inspe on inspection reports and years back, lesson learned, um, there's always a reference to a qualified HVAC technician or a qualified plumber or a structural engineer. And so I think some of us have just started where we go to do an inspection. We just have a HVAC guy there to inspect the heating and cooling system. So when you go to inspect a heating and cooling system, what exactly are you looking for that would determine if somebody else needed to look at it as well? Well, I mean, at the home inspection, uh, we are operating the heating and the cooling side, uh, cooling dependent on outside temperature. If it's too cold where we cannot uh, operate the cooling system. Um, and we're, we're opening the furnace, but primarily it is a visual inspection. We're looking for signs of a problem as we do throughout the home. We, we look at the ceiling to see a water stain. That's a sign that there may be a problem either with plumbing or roof. Same with HVAC, corrosion more than anything else, but there are many other things we're looking for. But we're, what we are not doing is a technically exhaustive, that's the term we use. It basically means we're not using measurements such as static pressure, refrigerant levels, uh, current load, that sort of thing to evaluate the system. A good HVAC co contractor will spend uh, 45 minutes to an hour per system. And many homes have too. So if you look at the typical home inspection, meaning three to four hours, uh, that that gives you an idea of, of just what work is done by an HVAC inspector that is not done by a home inspector. Uh, and on HVAC is the one system that if I could encourage everyone to have done pre-listing, it would be that. Uh, even if the system's only three years old, to have an HVAC contractor come in, maintain the system, and report their findings. Then, if uh, the home inspector comes behind them and they see a concern, it may indicate, for example, the condensation is backed up into the house and it, it, into the system. It can happen and within just a few years, even on a brand new system. That, again, makes the process go more smoothly. 
home inspector says we see a little bit of corrosion or water stains that indicates the condensation lines backed up. The seller then says to the buyer, oh, here is my uh, maintenance that we did on the system just before we listed it. And they, you can see right there that they cleaned that condensation line. Everybody's happy and the process moves on. Okay, Brad, what, when you, you mentioned earlier about prepping your clients for the home inspection, um, because I've heard agents say that home inspector is going to find everything wrong with your house. And were you aware that the home inspectors have a standards of practice that they go by and there's it's almost like a checklist of what they check? And do you think that would be something useful to for realtors to have or have knowledge of? Yeah, I do. I am aware of that. I've never had the uh, opportunity to view it. But, you know, you always hear as the years go by. Uh, one thing that I've heard lately, don't know if there's any truth to it, is a lot of times in these thermal or double pane windows, you know, you'll have a, a, a failed sash. And, you know, that really can be, especially when windows are really hard to get to up high, there has to be a judgment call made because sometimes it can literally be a dirty window versus a failed seal, which is not giving insulation value, but I had heard that uh, the inspector board is not making inspectors comment on those uh, failed sashes or fog sashes, and uh, don't know if that's true, but I think it would be very helpful for uh, agents to know kind of what the rundown is and, and, and what their uh, standard operating procedures are. David, would you follow up on that, especially about the windows? Certainly, yeah. No, the, the, the standard practice is very specific on the structural and mechanical systems that we cover. And uh, within recently, meaning the last few years, uh, the standard practice was revised to exclude whether or not there was a broken seal in a window. They were talking about, obviously, windows with two panes of glass where uh, inert gas is injected in between those two panes to improve its insulating ability. Uh, the reason it was removed is because detecting that is uh, something that depends on, can depend on the time of day, it can depend on the HVAC system and how it's been operating, the time of year. There's many things that uh, can um, cause you to not notice a particular window has lost its seal, and that's why it was removed. However, uh, most, if not all, home inspectors, when they see obvious signs of a broken seal, they will report it. Uh, as you say, sometimes it can be a, a dirty window, but more often than not, it's gonna be pretty clear that there's moisture between the panes or believe it or not, there's actual fungal growth between the two panes, uh, which is in, in indicative of uh, a broken seal. So we'll, this, it's one of those things that I think that the industry for the most part does is the best effort to identify those. But when you, again, when you refer that to the specialist, uh, if I find uh, a couple of uh, clear windows that are broken seals as specialists, because that's what they do every day, they will come in and say, oh yeah, and here's three more. Uh, so don't depend on that being the exhaustive list until you've referred it to a uh, specialist. Brad has already touched on a lot of times when people go and get the Inspection and they get moved into the house and they find things that were missed um, by the home inspector. And I, um, I'm wondering 
What kind of David of warranty does a home inspector give, if any? Uh, home inspectors don't. Decision. Yeah, home inspectors don't, uh, for the most part, provide a warranty. Sometimes they'll use a, a warranty service uh, where you essentially uh, it's an insurance company that uh, receives a small pre- receives a premium from the home inspector, and then they're in, in effect warranting uh, that. But for the most part, no. It if we had five of the most experienced home inspectors in, in the area. Uh, inspect a home, each of us will find something the other four did not. It, it's just the nature of it. But we're looking, of course, for the major items, the most notable items. Uh, we want to make sure that to our best of our ability that the client understands uh, the, the, the understands what the condition of the home is at that time and help them make a, a good decision. Um, and in terms of um, missing things that Brad touched on this earlier, more than anything else, uh, encourage them to talk to the inspector directly. Brad, you're absolutely right. It, you're not dishing responsibility when you say pick up the phone and call Dave and, and have that conversation. I uh, And I know all of my colleagues uh, encourage clients to have that conversation. Oftentimes, something that is, quote, missed is one of those items not covered by the standard practice, uh, maybe a cosmetic item or something like that. But Developing that relationship and that rapport uh, allows the home inspector to guide them as best they can through uh, the situation they're in, but it also provides feedback. And that's very important uh, for both the client and the realtor to have these discussions and this interaction back and forth uh, sharpens us as a, a tool in the process, if you will, and makes us better at the job. Brad, would it be helpful if there was some uniformity to the inspection reports? Um, Like we get five different inspections and it may be if you've had a pre-listing inspection, that inspection report might have been 26 pages long. And then when the buyer gets their inspection, it might be 172 pages long. But each inspector has their own format that they use. Brad, what are your thoughts on there being some type of uniform format? Yeah, I I think it would be very helpful if like the the wood destroying insect report, which is that boilerplate form that has to be used by any and all pest inspectors, it's filled out the same, well, can be filled out differently, but it, it, uh, you know, puts everything on a level playing field. It either, the home either shows signs of past or present infestation with spot treatment or not, or it doesn't. Uh, I think it would be very helpful if there could be more of a boilerplate inspection form, but, you know, I think there'd have to be, uh, there'd have to be quite a bit of work done to arrive at that because some of these inspectors might use say a home gauge system for their reporting. Some might use another software program and some are quite intimidating to a buyer. And and if you know the inspector that they're going to use and you know their style, you can talk to them beforehand and say, hey, you're probably gonna get about an 80 page report, but please remember there may be 75 of those pages are just body and there may be five pages of summary. What we want to concentrate is on is the summary section. That might be items identified by inspector that could be deficient 
or that are uh, talking points that may need work. Uh, mainly the crawl spaces, you know, down here where Connie and I work, crawl spaces are normally where deal killers are hiding. And there's so much interpretation between inspectors. And that's where I wish that there could be a form made that was just black and white. That, that could remove some of the interpretation because everyone has different schools of thought on how to handle crawl spaces, how to dry them out, uh, whether or not you leave your foundation vents open, closed, you put a dehumidifier, 100% vapor barrier. I mean, it, you, you know, you, you hire who you trust and you want to believe what they say is the gospel. But if you ask around to any friends that have bought homes, you know, everybody becomes an expert around you and tells you exactly what you need to know. And so I do think it would be nice to have a, a standardized format uh, for inspectors to use, but some inspectors are more detail oriented and include more pictures, which I really like because a picture is worth a thousand words. Uh, but that, that uh, the thing that really does, cause a lot of conflict in, in my dealings, maybe just with my luck, is when you're underneath the house and they come out and they have, you know, signs of fungal growth or darkened wooden members underneath the house. Just because the wooden members are darkened doesn't necessarily mean they've lost their structural integrity, where some inspectors interpret that as a problem. Uh, and that it should be uh, sistered or a new joist added. Uh, I think we just have such seasonal problems around here based on air conditioning months. I think you might probe wooden members in July and might get a reading of 23% wood moisture content. You could go back to the same house in February and it would read 14. So, uh, just a lot of interpretation that can really confuse buyers. And I think it's our job to try and uh, explain that to buyers, as well as what David said. We also need to prepare them for what is in included in a home inspection. If there's an outbuilding, that's not gonna be inspected unless they talk to the uh, inspector beforehand and work out a deal, uh, probably an additional charge and also, uh, per, uh, you know, appurtenances such as a uh, irrigation system. A lot of times when people see irrigation in a closet, they are going to, uh, they assume that that home inspector is going to run that. And we, it's our responsibility to say, hey, if you would like an irrigation system inspected, that is not the duty of a general home inspector. You'll have to contract with a you know, uh, a irrigation specialist or contractor to test those type systems. So we just need to, to set the expectations clear when it comes to additional items that home inspectors are not to touch or whether it be gas logs that a pilot is not lit. We need to tell them, hey, if the pilot's not lit, that inspector's not able to, to uh, touch that. And that's probably in the checklist that David has. Try to have that uh, pilot lit so that he can verify proper operation of that uh, gas log set. So, but interpretation is a big problem. And I do think a standardized form would be great, but I know it would be 
you know, time, uh, time consuming thing to get everyone to agree on that. David, would you comment on that as well? Uh, which of the three items would you like? <laughs> no, seriously. The, Sorry, the, I was, uh, no, Brad, that was, it was all very good information and very good points. Uh, first of all, the, the, the reporting itself, of course, this, the standard of practice does spell out what we're required to report. And uh, it includes for each item that we are to describe the, the condition um, and where it's located and that sort of thing. We are to talk about the implication of this particular item. And I would encourage um, all of the realtors who are listening here to pay special attention to that implication point because that tells you the degree of concern that you should have for the client. Obviously, something structural is much more concerning than something that's a, a door not latching, for example. But um, you know, to get it down to a checklist type format would, would not meet the standard of practice. There are some things in terms of organization we could do that would allow things to fall in this, uh, the uh, the same order, if you will. Uh, you're right that the reports are required to include the report body as well as the summary. And the summary are the items that are the concern, uh, let's just say, is that more pertinent to the transaction itself. And you're, you're right in that respect to point them to the summary. But uh, please always encourage uh, the clients to go back and review the report body because there's a lot of information that's, that's built in there. Uh, an example in my case would be where the main water shutoff is. Well, why do we tell them that? Because when the pipe breaks and there's water flowing everybody, no one knows what to do and they try to wrap a rag around it. No, run to that main water shutoff and turn things off. Um, to come back to your point about fungal growth and crawl space, that is um, one of the bigger items. And you're right in that depending on what's observed, uh, will dictate what you do from that point forward. I mean, fungal growth needs two things. It needs a food source, that's the wood, and it needs moisture. And you're right, the moisture content of that wood is much higher in July than it is in January. What we're trying to convey is a degree of concern. Uh, because if we walk in or crawl in and see light fungal growth, well, that fungal growth will continue. Every time the humidity gets high enough to raise that wood content to 17% or higher, it's going to start growing again. And then when the wintertime comes, it's going to dry out and it's going to stop growing. It's going to stay where it is. Now, on one house, there may be just enough moisture in it in the, in the summer months for it to take 120 years for it to have any real effect on the home. For another house, it may be only two years from that being a significant concern because that's getting a lot more moisture for whatever reason. So we're trying to convey just that. What is the level of concern to your point? Has there been any kind of deterioration of the wood structure yet? Um, and then uh, again, the implication of it and then what, what to do next. Now, in terms of uh, remediation, it's not just a matter of going in and cleaning the fungal growth off the wood. That's not doing anyone any good. It's a matter of identifying where the moisture is coming from. Again, whether the, you know, the crawl space ventilation is appropriate uh, and or there's water flowing in from the landscaping and remediate that first, then take care of cleaning off the fungal growth. Uh, so that's, um, and I'm, I'm now I'm trying to remember the, your third point. <laughs> Those are the two things I remember from what you said. 
I don't remember what it was either. Do you, Brent? <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, just uh, I think I made a point of concerning that we as agents need to be sure that we mention that what's included in a home inspection. Right. We're not going to go uh, do outbuildings, uh, uh, auxiliary systems such as irrigation and, and irrigation generators, generators, generators. Are generators. Point out. There, yeah. There's a lot of them. And uh, like you said, uh, making clients aware of that ahead of time, anything you can do to smooth out the process ahead of time and avoid any surprises for the client uh, while they're in that uh, short due diligence period and trying to make a big decision. It, it, that's, that's what we're there for. Okay. I think if we could somehow maybe do uh, a summary form that brokers would be um, have access to, to give out to clients would be helpful. So maybe that's something we can, um, we can talk about it to, at, you know, at a later time. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, Brad mentioned uh, the software uh, products that uh, home inspectors use. Many of them have a create, require, a repair list, I think, CRL list yeah. uh, function. That's also very helpful for realtors to come in. And if, I, if there's, you know, 15 items that the inspector has reported and they, you have the discussion with the client and they decide we want uh, these three items uh, repaired, then they can come through and select those particular items. And that makes it into a nice one page summary that's easily attached to the uh, repair request form. That's a good idea. Well, I want to thank both of you for being with us today and sharing this information. And we are going to be planning on doing a really big uh, webinar, hopefully in August, um, between home inspectors and realtors from across the state. And um, that'll be that we're working on that now. And I think the biggest thing that we all need to remember is communication with our clients um, for expectations. So we'll work on some of these things we've talked about today. And again, I want to thank both of you for your time and your knowledge and your expertise. Thank you guys very much. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Be sure to catch up on every episode of NC Realtors Redefine by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud.